Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Sheena, I have learned something as we've been doing this podcast. You are very well connected because you know almost all of our <laughs> podcast guests before we meet them as podcast guests. That, that has been maybe a little bit of a coincidence, but we are also waiting for recommendations from our audience. We would love your requests of either people or topics that you'd love us to cover at Reveal. So if you have ideas, please email us at reveal at gong.io. We read every single email that comes in. Absolutely. And what was cool is we got to hang out with Harish Mohan, uh, but he's the VP of Global RevOps at Pendo. And what's been interesting is we're seeing, just like CRO, we're seeing revenue operations come up more and more. And even having been in sales for a long time, I wasn't really sure, honestly, what exactly it meant. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if it was a new name for sales ops, uh, which I've learned it is not, mm -hmm. um, or if it was something kind of completely different, a new um, you know, set of skills, disciplines, et cetera. And what was cool was Harish said it's really about a new mentality yeah. and a way that they envision alignment uh, all of with the goal of you know hitting that predictable revenue uh, and becoming pr a predictable revenue engine. And when you really kind of narrowed it down, it was cool to hear him basically put a microscope on land and expand mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. really doubled down on not the expand, which is what I was expecting, but he's like the expand really uh, is dependent on the land and where are you landing and how are you landing? Yeah. And then from there, really start to focus on expand. So I was I was really interested uh, throughout the whole thing. And, and he also made me laugh quite a few times. Yeah, he's a funny guy. And super experienced like he had really deep experience at NetSuite right um so you know he has been through the startup world like since dot-com days more yeah. or less um so he's kind of been through it a few times and has uh you know seen the trends and now been able to bring that to Pendo where he is now so um, I think there's a ton that folks can take out whether or not you're in RevOps or not you know even as a sales operator as a leader as a manager you can take a lot of um, insights out of how he looks at data. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things was also like, are you, is the, is the question that you're posing to answer worth answering in the first place? So stop and think about that before you just start running after uh, the data. I should probably practice that a little bit more. Is this question worth answering? In your personal life? In my personal life, <laughs> in my work life, frankly, but in, in all aspects. Uh, well, cool. Let's go and dive into our interview with Harish. We're joined here today with Harish Mohan, who is the Global VP of Revenue Ops at Pendo. Hey, Harish, how you doing? Hi, hi, Sheena. How are you? And Devin, good to meet you. Likewise, likewise. So you're getting back from what you call semi-retirement. What was semi-retirement and what did you do over that period of time? Um, yeah, first, you know, number one, I think it was very fortunate after a 15-year great run at NetSuite to get a little bit of time off. Um, been part of that ride from when we we're about 30 million in ARR to, you know, a little over a billion and a half. So 
learned a lot, did a lot, um, and it was time to take a break and enjoy the uh, the spoils of all of that productivity. So, you know, took a step back and just wanted to figure out what the next adventure is, but get some downtime before that. And I will say the most disconcerting thing was on day one when you have a lifelong addiction email and you wake up every morning and go to bed every night without a full inbox is when outlook said no more messages uh, that had you know there was anxiety involved um, but got through that without any therapy and it was great you know and i, I was kidding around I, I split my days on pants days and no pants days um <laughs> where you know just take it take a rehab take some relaxed time and there's days where towards the end where i got involved in a little bit more consulting with organizations just to get you know, just to balance off and get cerebrally challenged, but uh, got a lot in auto racing as well. So just cool. nothing that felt really good. Well, glad you got some R and R, and now that you're back in everyday pants mode, uh, <laughs> what does your morning routine look like? I don't think I've ever had a daily standard morning routine, um, and I think that's part of the get up and go that I love. And you know, a large contributor to that is. You know, when you run a global team, you kind of wake up in the morning and you get your cup of coffee. And I guess that is kind of routine and mm-hmm. you plug in a work and you don't know which direction you're going to be taken. Um, and in most mornings for a long period of time, you first have to wake up in the morning and figure out what city and country you're in. So <laughs> that was probably a good 10 minutes <laughs> and, then, and then get on with the day from there. And so mo- moving more into, uh, you know, this new role. Revenue ops is a newer function. How would you describe your role? And, and maybe an easier way to do that is what's the difference between sales ops and revenue ops? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. I think revenue ops is, I'd say twofold, right? I think number one, it's it's a new role, but it's also a new mentality. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, prior to the subscription annuity recurring business model taking off, businesses went to market in a very monolithic way, right? You had various teams within the organization saying, look, my job is to figure out how to acquire a customer and hand it off to someone, throw the wall or group that says, my job is to figure out how to close the customer. My job is to figure out how to get the customer implemented and deliver value. And then my job is to continue to support the customer. And every or part of the organization ran on a separate P&L and they were incented to. And the overall vision was hopefully that some of the parts become greater than the whole. And that works when you don't have to worry about things like lifetime value, right? And growth was really predicated on acquiring brand new units and squeezing as much as you can out of those brand new units or services dollars of providing continuous value in a product platform and a services delivery platform. Mm-hmm. I think RevOps for me is really kind of the genesis of now that we actually have to worry about customers being empowered and having more decisions and providing the consistent value from when we first talk to them to continually how we expand them, someone's got to own that motion. Someone's got to understand what the outcomes of the strategy are and orchestrate all these different groups and break the silos between all these different operational efficiencies that are being optimized within the silos and make sure that we're delivering an amplified outcome. So that's kind of the role I see RevOps going into. And I actually, like I said earlier, I think it's more than just a role. I think it's a state of mind that any recurring revenue subscription business needs to embrace. If you think about it, like the last five or 10 years, we've seen a heightened sense of specialized roles, right? CS, sales dev. It sounds like the uh, pendulum swinging back and RevOps is helping to combine all these teams so we really have one you know, go-to-market effort or one go-to-market voice and strategy. 
Well, and it's, it's combining the effort, but also combining the customer and company outcome, right? So if I, if I run PS Ops, I'm looking at how do I make and drive an efficient PSP and L versus if I'm running a sales ops team, I'm looking at recurring revenue and where my dollars are coming from. Someone's got to take a step back and say, well, if you have to rob Peter to pay Paul to do the right thing for our customer and shareholder outcome, how do you know who makes that decision and who makes sure that every organization responds appropriately? So that I look at is the role of RevOps, which you know, I think it's more additive than instead of. And you're not substituting something. I think you're adding two to make everyone execute better. What kinds of companies do you think need a revenue ops function? And is there a right moment in the company's life cycle when they should consider building out that team? The, the thought process and the, the idea of revenue operations and running your entire business against a single business model and what we call a single funnel, I think needs to be in place from day one, right? From the very get-go, you have product market fit, now you're looking at how do I commercialize and go to market to take advantage of this great solution I've built that delivers value to customers in perpetuity and, and where I want to invest and grow how I deliver value. Having the mentality of saying we're going to do one thing or two things and do it well end to end and make sure we have the hygiene and diligence and focus to pull that off needs to be there from day one. I think once you have that at scale and say hey, each of these organizations now are built out to a critical mass where they need their own separate groups in order to make sure that they're operating appropriately and we're going to build those individuals out is the right moment to say, well, as we do that, let's make sure this business model concept doesn't go away and we continue having everyone execute against that single objective. I think that's kind of your pivotal moment or inflection point of thinking of let's build out a revenue operations team to collaborate and create cohesion within all of my separate organizations that build out my go-to-market model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so before you were at Pendo, you were at NetSuite for almost 15 years or so as the global VP of strategy and international ops. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the scope of that role and what are the, some of the major initiatives that you worked on during your time there that you're at least most proud of? Well, I'm kind of breaking into three arcs, right? I think we were very lucky with NetSuite where we were the early pioneers of SaaS, right? And I remember some of the early conversations I got into where we had to spend a lot of time on explaining why your data was not going to get stolen by the boogeyman because it wasn't in a server behind your wall. Um, and actually, we do a better job than anyone else on it. So it was kind of Salesforce.com and NetSuite that were the pioneers of SaaS in you know, the early, early 2000s. Um, and my role over there kind of graduated into three career arcs. So I came in um, to really build out the pre-sales organization um, as we were moving from SMB to mid-market to enterprise. So, you know, spent some time really understanding and, and, and building out our motion on how does the NetSuite technology and platform differentiate itself in the business value it delivers. Um, and as we did that, got responsibility in a broader go-to-market teams, our value competitive, enablement, all the other organizations that then support sales productivity and make sure that as we add more capacity, as we grow our geographical footprint, as we enter new verticals and segments, that we have a predictable model of growth and, and seller outcomes. And finally, towards the end, as we post Oracle acquisition, really ran all of go-to-market, which we call in terms sweet success, right? So we took this business model we had, we branded it, and everyone at NetSuite, whether you were in sales or PS or HR or IT, 
knew what sweet success is, how we engage customers, how we all had to operate to amplify the value of our product and, and go to market strategy. And as we started new offices, that became our franchise model of incubation and growth. And so that was within my purview uh, in terms of the, the last kind of arc of NetSuite and you know, building out our international footprint at a much bigger scale than uh, than we could as a, as a public company. Because we had luckily had the big Oracle uh, checkbook and you know we got funded to do things a lot faster than we can when we had shareholders looking in. So it sounds like driving sales productivity and efficiency was highly critical for you. I'm curious if you had a North Star metric that you, you were, it was the highest priority for you and you were developing programs to improve that metric and if that metric changed over time. The two core metrics for us always are going to be, you know, NPS and AR, right? I mean, I think that's for any company around the world that is in a similar business model right now. The way we would look at that, though, is rather than say, well, to get that metric, what is each group? And kind of comes back to what we built this thing called Sweet Success to do was how do we build a collaborative go-to-market strategy where we all optimize our metrics against the right benchmarks that led to great NPS and that also provided a very productive avenue for ARR growth. And so the kinds of things we look at in the very beginning is, okay, how do we differentiate ourselves in customer value? Are we doing a good job of that? And we would look at our overall AR discount, for, you know, AR discount trends and see how do we stack up pricing, packaging, and from a competitiveness standpoint. Being a services-driven implementation, we'd also look at, well, are we doing the right things across the life cycle where we're able to deliver customer value, but with a motion where we're getting more recurring dollars out of each logo than services dollars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do we create more effective services offerings? And in fact, even with NetSuite, we moved the entire service organization to be compensated, measured on ARR as a primary metric rather than their PL and billing. So mm-hmm. we moved them over to help drive this core metric, core outcome. From a sales perspective, the things that really matter more as well, rep participation, right? As you're growing your base of sellers, you need all these sellers to be productive in order, and that was the easiest mechanism to drive growth, right? Rather than, you know, if you looked at it, we had to make a decision on, well, can, do we spend a million dollars more on marketing spend? Do we spend a million dollars more on productivity tools and uh, initiatives to drive increased participation? We take into increased participation a heartbeat, right? The ROI on that was measurably more significant than spending a dollar more in marketing. So we, we did a lot of work to try to maximize rep participation before spending a dollar somewhere else. Then we'll look at just general onboarding, right? Time to first logo. Have we set the organization up so that new sellers contribute early? And we actually did the math early on a few years ago where we can improve new seller ramp by two months. That would add 35% growth on gross against in any financial year based on their early and frequent participation. So we spent a lot of time making enablement a participant of this business model and actually quantifying their outcome as a sales outcome rather than looking at them as a support function. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then we look at sales cycle, time, velocity, et cetera. So kind of we optimize our approach against a benchmark of metrics and had everyone then build their business model against these core set of outcomes so that at the end of the day, it's plug and play and the keywords we have repeatability in, in the model, no matter where we set it up in the world. When you look back at some of those initiatives, are there one or two programs that you helped drive that you felt made a huge impact towards rep participation or another one of the areas that you were measuring 
would love to hear a little bit more about how the tactics of one of those programs worked. Yeah, there's a few things that we tried, I think, that were kind of novel that worked out really well. I mean, um, in terms of driving, you know, let's say, you know, rep participation earlier in their ramp and getting them to, you know, time to first strike to, uh, to get more, you know, more efficient. You know, we looked at, for example, and it, kind of a balanced outcome, right? So in any organization, you get your high quality inbound uh, leads, you get mid-low quality. We knew the high quality leads had a very high conversion rate. And for us, it was about making sure that we had the right seller working those early um, in order to protect the outside risk of conversion. Mm -hmm. Now, in a, how next you want to market, you bring a new seller, there's going to be higher risk of them fumbling around as they ram trying to get their first transaction done. So what we did is for particular carved out lead types, for example, we would partner a new seller with an existing seller. We'd split the deal where for the new seller, the probability of conversion goes up. For an existing seller, it's a great secondary way to go make some money for their pocketbook. And for the company, we protected the downside on that particular um, you know, buyer not converting because we knew that was going to be the very big part of our bridge to grow. So. Now, that was something that we instituted about two years ago and really, number one, drove early participation and drove time to first track down in a very efficient manner. But number two, what we saw was that the conversion rate actually improved overall. So kind of a, a guide for us that we had significant revenue leakage because of these you know, high quality uh, pieces of demand going to new sellers who didn't know what to do with it. So that was one of kind of a geeky win, but a big win. And we actually, one of these things that um, Oracle looked at and said, holy crap, you know, maybe something we should do. And the second big driver really for us was sweet success, right? I mean, it requires significant organizational change. I, mean, I think about how you, you know, how you build product, how you package your product, how you price up your product, how you run your sales motion, how you run your delivery motion, you know, what, what and how do we get these motions to work together and how do we drive the customer success motion out of it and make sure everyone's incented and change incentive plans appropriately and also educate our customers and buyers in a different way, right? So required significant organizational change. I think the first year and a half, we probably saw diminishing returns based on adoption. Uh, but overnight, the contribution on AR, discounting, everything we're looking for started training the right way. And honestly, it's a very, very significant part of our continued success of how we keep growing 30 to 40% year over year. All right, everyone. In every episode, we have a data breakout, a quick sidebar to look at the data. Harish says RevOps is all about understanding the outcomes of sales strategies and optimizing them across departments. This reflects a shift in focus away from the sales process and towards the buyer's journey, or in other words, switching the lens of optimization from first call to close and towards first touch to renewal. The former is specific to sales, while the latter encompasses all go-to-market teams involved in engaging, winning, and keeping customers. And this approach is in direct response to the shift in buyer expectations. With 80% reporting, they now expect a buying experience that closely resembles a B2C buying experience. In short, you need to make it easy and enjoyable for your clients to buy. Here are some impossible to ignore trends to confirm. According to a Forrester study, customer experience leaders outperform those lagging in customer experience on the S&P 500 index by nearly 
Additionally, their customers are seven times more likely to return to the company, eight times more likely to try other products or services offered, and 15 times more likely to spread positive word of mouth. These stats are intriguing because they go beyond close rates and start to touch on renewal rates, upsell opportunity, and customer advocacy, all which help businesses grow their ARR. As you can see, putting the buyer's journey at the forefront of your approach comes full circle and aids in all aspects of go-to-market success. I mean, it seems like some of these efforts are pretty massive in scale. You have to work across multiple functions, uh, you know, inside sales, your, sal- your sales team, sales ops, marketing, et cetera. Um, how do you ensure that everybody's on the same page when you're rolling out a huge effort like this? Yeah, um, you know, in, in, in two folds. So number one, hey, welcome to the world of revenue operations. <laughs> this is your life. Set it up right there, right? I mean, that that's the role, right? It's driving these organizational projects that require everyone to separate from their silo and align to a business model, right? I mean, that is fundamentally, but kind of coming back to earlier conversation, the role I think that revenue ops is starting to build out and bridge. Um, and it requires significant amount of executive sponsorship. And, you know, next we would have this saying that was great, and it was coined by our CEO at that point in time. It's called FIFO. Um, and it was fit in or fuck off. So you better FIFO, and some people pick the latter option, um, which is fine, right? So, I mean, it, it, you know, it reduces degrees of freedom to go try random things, but it definitely amplifies the core investment that you're putting into your go-to-market. I'm going to start hearing uh, BIFO from Sheena more often now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, that BIFO transfers well everywhere. I love that. It's your first initiative at Pendo. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Hashtag BIFO. <laughs> So if we fast forward now to 2020, what are some of the trends that you're looking at? Uh, What's most exciting to you and which ones do you think you'll kind of take into play as you strategize for next year? You know, and it's, it's really different, right? So, I mean, you know, when I started and then we were small, then went from start to scale up to, to kind of scale. Um, and it's back to basics. It's finding your roots. Um, and I will say it's a very different working in a scale-up environment now, you know, a startup in a scale-up environment now than when I was getting my stripes where, number one, the amount of technology that organizations have to scale immediately and significantly is impressive. Right. I mean, you can go from some, you know, a small group of people having a large market impact thanks to the advantages of amplification based on any, you know, you insert sales tax tool here to help you get either reach a better market and a broader marketplace, convert in a broader marketplace, reach more buyers, get more intelligent about buyers, service your customers proactively. So, you know, there's definitely a learning curve involved there and saying, great. But to some extent, there's almost something, you know, there's tool proliferation. Right, because there's so many things that are offered in the market and it's quote unquote easier to do everything, you tend you might tend to dilute yourself or not create the right investment strategy to complete any one initiative. And I think that's part of what we're trying to figure out here, which is what are the right things to be doing and do we have the right strategies and do we have the right amount of support as opposed to diluting the efforts by almost bringing in too much automation? If you were to ask me like, hey, what do we want to get out of 2020 from a leadership perspective? I think any company in Pendo's growth curve is looking for the same thing, predictability, right? If you look at why investors put in the multiples they do, it's the bet on predictability. Will you have a predictable growth model that provides a project consistent means for us to multiply the value that we're seeing within your organization? I think that's what we're striving to. 
when I was asked when I came in and talked to the company about what am I here to do, it's really two very, very simple things. I want to make it easier for us to acquire a customer, and I want to make it, I want to make it easier for us to expand the customer. And if we can do those two things in a predictable manner, we will outshine and differentiate out hustle anyone else out there. And I think that's really kind of the core, again, comes back to the core value, what a, a revenue operator can deliver in any particular organization. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of sales leaders are focused on acquiring new logos. That's nothing new. But expanding is something that is coming a little bit more into um, the foreground, if you will, a little bit more into focus. Do you have any maybe advice or strategies that have worked for you, Harish, that can help the sales leaders listening to really nail the expand of their land and expand model? I think number one comes down to determining where you want to land. Um, And for any sales leader, my advice would be, you know, as much as you give a lip service to ICP, that's really important. You're not going to battle and win on every single front to start with. Like in marketplaces are large, and especially if you're a company like Pendo, where we're creating a category, the marketplace could be as well infinite. Where are we going to really establish our land? An expansion motion really then is a factor of our land motion. And for us, it's really, I think that's kind of part of the growing up identity crisis that we're working through is where do we add the most defendable value? And then once we're in, how do we create a motion where we are partnered with our customers to drive increased value and in how they leverage Pendo to solve their business challenges, but also you know gives a good means to drive a good commercial outcome from Pendo through that process as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good news for us, I'm going to go apply please Pendo uses Pendo for that. So we completely, you know, we have visibility into how our customers are leveraging our solution, what they're doing, what they're not doing, mm-hmm. understanding those behavior patterns and building a playbook there. And honestly, that was one of the reasons I, I was very interested in making this move is this is a very business problem that I was solving at NetSuite towards the end. And it takes a lot of effort. Understand, you know, when there's a lot of organizations out there in this domain now and building out this category, and I think there's heat and momentum here because you're not going to expand unless you know what your users want out of you and are able to predict their next motion. And that's the most valuable insights you can have. Touching on predictability, it's one of the most um, challenging things that a company is trying to forecast. What are like the top three factors that throw off predictability and make it so hard? Like it could be inside or outside factors. Yeah, I'd say number one, uh, I look at, you know, not understanding your market and playing in a very broad marketplace arena. If you don't know where you're going to acquire your next customer and building out a cohesive model from marketing all the way to your sales playbook on where you're going to win, where you have defended value and how you're going to win, where your next customer is going to come from, that volatility will kill you. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, you know, is it, is it corporate? Is it a commercial model? Is it enterprise? Is it verticals? You know, which persona am I selling to? If that's too divergent, that's going to create turbulence to start with because number one, a seller is going to come in and not know where the hell to start. Number two, it's very hard for any marketing organization to build a brand demand model that tries to cater to every single go-to-market strategy that anyone could dream of. So I think having an identified true land, you know, ICP is critical Number two, I think everyone will say like the enablement of your sales team 
and providing a consistent manner to build and execute pipeline, having the right stages defined that give you visibility is key. And I think number three, it's having the hygiene is saying no, right? So if something di- you know takes you away or is divergent from your core vision and purpose, mm-hmm. put it on pause, come back to it, but stay true to your true north and make sure that you're building out the motion most effectively against your single strategy. Yeah, I think that ability to say no to seemingly fruitful or rewarding opportunities is super critical for startups and hyper-growth companies. Are there any examples that you can point us to of where it seemed like an amazing opportunity that this company should go all in, but the right choice at the time was to say no? You know, I think we're still learning that at Pendo. Um, And I think that's, you know, we're the right part of our growth curve to learn that lesson. Um, And knowing it now is going to be critical as we really start scaling up. We had a lot of pull because, you know, when you're not in a market in any scale, you're going to get a ton of inbound organic demand. And we had a lot of pull to get into a lot of countries. For example, India, Brazil, and China being the biggest, right? Um, Marketplace, again, huge appetite for NetSuite, huge ability to pay huge, but the cost structure, the, you know, the distraction from a roadmap perspective, the distraction from translation perspective required us to kind of wear our big boy pants um, and say, no, we're not ready for these markets. It is better for us to put the next dollar into one of the markets where we do already have a product. We have assets, we have sellers that speak English. We have sellers that buy in a similar manner and drive growth there rather than getting distracted by the new shiny thing. Right. Is there anything else that you are super laser focused on that you wish you could answer and you can't? And I potentially there's data that would ultimately help you solve that unanswerable question. Well, I think the first the thing I put kind of myself through common sense test is, is it worth getting the answer or am I getting distracted? Yeah. Right. And I think that's a big part, again, of any good, strong Red Lobs leader is you have to have that ability to make the call. Um, and I think that determination comes with experience a lot. It's hard to make a data-driven decision of whether you should go look at data. <laughs> the biggest unanswered question that I have right now, and as a, I think as a company we have right now, is that we price and package appropriately for the marketplaces that we are competing in. Mm-hmm. The competitive landscape changes overnight, right? There's the amount of people that enter, the amount of organizations that have, have entered are growing and have competing solutions, the amount of replacement, uh, solutions in the marketplace are very dynamic. That's one of these things, your price book, you got to be very diligent on, are we still priced to win? Are we still priced to deliver motion? But your earlier point also, are we priced the right way for our lane and expand strategy? With the right mechanisms and the right ways, and do we have the right levers for growth there? Or are we bottlenecking ourselves in terms of how we acquire customers? Um, but also, how do we not create too many freedoms of licensing and growth and and dials to grow with because our customers are going to get frustrated because they think we're nickeling and diming them. So I think we're in the process of determining, well, you know, our price book worked from zero to where we are, but for the next growth arc, what's the right way for us to deliver value in the marketplace and, and take advantage of customers growing with Pendo? And there's a lot of data and a lot of help we're getting on that front, but that is our biggest unanswered question right now. We always love to have our guests give some advice to listeners. So, uh, Harish, I'm curious, what single skill should revenue leaders focus on this year? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think the one skill that all of us need to continue, especially with evolving marketplace and changing marketplace, um, and generally the environment of the country is to be empathetic, mm. right? Especially 
you're in a growth curve of Gong and Pendo, you're asking a lot from your sales organization and go-to-market organization. You know, there's a lot of learning, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of uncertainty, and your ability to be empathetic through that and drive that change in the right way is going to be critical. Lots and lots and lots of existing people and process and, and, and tools to help you manage through that change, but if you don't have the empathy for your people as you drive it, you're going to lose great human capital. And we're still in a very competitive economy, right? People want to go where they think they're heard and where they think they can win and where they think they can make an impact. And as a sales leader, it's up to you to create that environment. If you could describe sales in one word, what would that be? I'd say winning. And it's winning for your customer. It's winning for your employees involved in that motion. And it's winning for the shareholder. But if we do it right, the outcome should be a win on all fronts. Nice. I love that. Yeah, we have absolutely. a we have in uh, one of our uh, company operating principles is win as a team. So it's more yeah. than just about me as a rep winning, or just me as a sales org winning. You have to look at all of the different stakeholders and how how can we all be in it together. Fantastic. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Harish, you, you made me laugh. You made me think. I am truly excited that you're able to join us on Reveal. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Devin. Thank you, Shannon. Every week, we bring you a micro action. It can be as simple as something to think about or an action you can put into play today. Since Harish had us thinking on exactly what the difference between revenue ops and sales ops is, let's think through if your business is ready for revenue operations. Here are a few things to consider. Is there someone specifically focused on bringing the different silos together so they're operationally sound? Have your silos reached a critical mass where they need their own dedicated ops person? Is there someone specifically focused on bringing the different silos together so they're operationally sound? And are you prioritizing collaboration and cohesion across teams to execute your go-to-market model? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you might be in a place where adding revenue operations as a function makes sense. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.